This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. G'day, you bloody rippers, and welcome to Film versus Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other, which movie film will hold up and which movie film will be left on the cutting room floor. In this episode, we're looking at two comedies that took the world by storm. Both of them broke box office records, both of them expanded the cultural lexicon, and both films took their TV star lead actors all the way to the Oscars. Yes, today we're talking about Australia's biggest box office success, Peter Feynman's Crocodile Dundee versus Larry Charles's Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. I'm filmmaker and true blue Aussie cobber, Craig Anderson, and as always, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile, and a bloke who's always willing to chuck another shrimp on the barbie, it's Herschel Isaacs. I suddenly realised in coming in here that we're talking about two movies that are going to just be like lots of fun to talk about, mm. as opposed to most of the episodes that we do on this podcast. <laughs> nah. <laughs> it's going to be lots of fun to talk about these. Not these are really the, wild ones. It's not another boring one, everyone. Stay with us. <laughs> We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother, a man who is sent from the Cape Town Ministry of Information to visit the greatest country on earth and make good as the Associate Professor of Film at the University of Sydney, it's Bruce Isaacs. I like that we did Crocodile Dundee and that I've been sent, you know, to the greatest country on earth because I'm the least... Mm. Aussie parochial sort of character I think you're going to find in Australia. I always found that a really odd characterization of the like the yeah. Aussie bloke, you know, because I'm not, nothing like that. I haven't been to as many barbecues uh, <laughs> since I re- met you guys since yeah. in in like 20 years. You, you, you're hanging out in a singlet, drinking a beer <laughs> at a barbecue. That is true. I don't know what you're saying. You're not clever. I'm, I'm trying to get, come on. Uh, I'm trying to get more Australian. <laughs> All right. As we always like to bang on about, the three of us grew up together on the colonised land of the Darug people in Western Sydney. We attended public schools and bonded over our undying love of cinema and all culture. So because this is a very rare comedy episode for what is rather a dry <laughs> and boring academic podcast, thanks Herschel, um, very nice. <laughs> Keep that in the case. Okay. I'd like to celebrate something that brought us a never-ending litany of laughter. Today, we're talking about a 12-episode British sitcom that raised the bar for all sitcoms ever since 1979. Yes, today we're shouting out to Andrew Sachs, Connie Booth, Prunella Scales and John Cleese in Faulty Towers. What a great uh, example, because that, can I just say, yeah. that was one of the other bootleg VHS yeah. that my dad had. Wow. So we, Do you remember family, which episode, yeah, Bruce? The episode, which to this day is still one of my favourites, maybe that's because it's from our childhood. This is bootleg is in Cape Town, right? Cape Town, yeah. yeah, yeah. We got it from Uncle Sonny, because he used to, like, I don't know where he got his bootleg he VHS traded. from. He traded. Um, we had the episode where Polly yes. had to dress up as Sybil. <laughs> 
because Sybil, uh, you know, uh, so so she's going to be the sick Sybil. Yes. Whereas, in fact, Sybil's left John Cleese in <laughs> anger for apparently forgetting their anniversary. But which he hasn't done back, because he's created a surprise party for Sybil. But, but yeah. where the comic genius comes in the episode is Sybil then comes back and mm-hmm. Cleese has to manage one person upstairs. <laughs> and there's a, con- there's, a, there's a Sybil upstairs and a Sybil downstairs. And in between, you've got the guests trying to work out what's going on. Yeah. I, I mean, I have so many wonderful memories from the episode, like where Polly goes, I'm not going to play Sybil. You play Sybil. And, and, and John Cleese says, oh, that's just brilliant, isn't it? I'll play Sybil. Give me the week. I'll play. And then, you know, when she's, she, she's almost refusing and he starts going, oh, my leg, my leg. You know, that, that was his, yeah, his yeah, constant yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Didn't he get shrapnel in the war? Yeah, he gets shrapnel, yeah. and, and yeah. he's constantly, whenever he needs someone to do what he wants, he will go into this kind of paroxysm of, of pain. But if you think about think of it, because so, I watch a hell of a lot of Seinfeld, if, mm. I'm, if, if I'm in any way in a non-positive mood or something, I throw on a Seinfeld, yeah. I'm back up again, right? Well, it's now, the same with when we were over your house. I go, hey, let's put in a faulty tower. Well, but look, for people that don't know, it was a sitcom from Britain in, in the 70s, and John Cleese had been very famous and popular on uh, the Monty Python, Monty Python um, yeah. TV show. And then I think it, they'd made movies by then throughout but the But we 70s. had Life yeah. of Brian bootlegged as well. That's another that's one. That's true. We and had that was banned in life. South Africa. Yeah, it was actually banned. So we had a contraband wow. VHS of Life of And Brian. the Exorcist was banned as well, yeah. which we had. Well, I know it was banned in Italy for sure. Sure, like yep. of Brian, a lot of Catholic countries, I believe. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think so it's still a, a, a sore spot. So for, South Africa was uh, a very some areas like religious, Italy, the Catholic faith, and so on. Wow. Yeah, South Africa was a very religious, yeah. uh, Catholic area, large Catholic population. <laughs> so then um, we couldn't watch a couple of things that we had, which was unbelievable. The other thing I want to say is the side characters in Faulty Towers, yeah, like major right. people like mm. that. You think <laughs> uh, that's what made me think of made me think of Seinfeld because you know when Newman comes into it, mm. pretty much every scene that Newman's got. Is classic, right? Yeah. yeah. But Major is the perfect offsider to um, John Cleese, to Polly, and and obviously to yeah. Manuel. I mean, yes. now Manuel's Manuel complicated is. to talk about now. Well, no, but so is Major. Major's the most racist figure, <laughs> like in probably the East Coast sitcoms. But Manuel's one of the funniest things that's ever been captured on cellular. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's hard nowadays because it is a. I guess it's a racist stereotype uh, mm. of the time, uh, but it was a very what I I still teach a lot of clown clowning stuff, and the structure of those characters is just as old as you know yeah. centuries old European clowning traditions. Where, where and do you reckon they do it well in Faulty Towers? Oh, like amazingly it's well. Level, it's the right? one I reference. So the yeah, the, right. the character of the white face clown, <laughs> yeah, um, who is the is is Basil Faulty. It's yep. it's someone who. Um, walks in straight lines and does uh, like turns at right angles, but also is associated <laughs> with authority and militariness, and and it's always like that is the thing that you want to subvert. Yeah. And Basil's fantastic because he subverts himself, but also you've got Manuel who constantly is the what is the red nosed clown yeah. is constantly subverting him by not understanding the very simple commands he's given. And in 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 in, in, in Basil <laughs> in Faulty Towers, it's a ra- it's a racial it's a language barrier, yeah. but in Clown, it's also just the red noses don't understand what the white faces want it makes that's, them angry. Never, that's such yeah. a great analysis because yeah. so what you're saying is they're taking a certain comedy structure yes. that is centuries old yeah and in a very sophisticated way bring it into British comedy. <laughs> absolutely I, yeah well I it's, love it's that. and 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 so is Prunella because then the white face needs someone above them yeah which then puts them down at the like uh, at the the middle clown yeah. and then the the Prunella uh, holds authority over Basil that makes Basil constantly scared and wanting to prove himself in front of her and that just increases the pressure for him. There's also, there's also wonderful serious ideas that come out that then become the springboard for mm. hilarity, right? So 
Remember when the guy turns up and it becomes the class thing? And Basil's going, oh, yeah. we, we can't have people yeah, like this. You mean about the Lord? Yeah, Lord Melvin. Lord Melvin is a, the most wonderful episode because <laughs> it's like you work your way through like a detective and Basil is such a fool, but so class-centric. Yeah. It's very um, class-aware. That's, it's, that's it's an excellent class episode of... Uh, there's also when I don't know if it's the Lord Melvin one or if it's the Spoon Inspector. Well, he becomes the, the Spoon yes. guy, um, the Inspector. But there's a young ruffian. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the guy comes on the motorbike. That's the Lord yeah. Melvin because right. he's the undercover cop. Exactly. That's right. He ultimately becomes the under- <laughs> and he walks in and Basil starts making all these references to him being a monkey and uncivilized. Yeah, yeah. Because his shirt's open. But yeah. there's and always and there's there's always this underlying kind of thing with Basil, and you get the feeling. And obviously, um, John Cleese. And what's her name? Pr- Polly? Uh, Prunella. So they no, obviously be, uh, they Connie, were, they Connie were married in the Connie Booth. Well, they were married, married for the first season, I think, and then in between the second season they had divorced. Yeah, so, right. um, Which is a testament because the second season is brilliant as well. There's yeah. always this undertone of, of, of Basil and and, uh, and Polly, but then when the motorcycle dude comes in, you know, there's a sexual tension between yeah. them, yeah. and then Basil is even worse. <laughs> but when Basil comes in, He's the least sexually attractive entity that you could imagine. <laughs> and the whole thing is hilarious. I, the other thing I wanted to ask was, what's your favorite bit of physical comedy in Faulty Towers? Because I've got a favorite. My favorite is when Basil picks up Manuel like a gun <laughs> and he's got his hand. <laughs> oh, yes. He wraps his hand well, around. Isn't it like a gnome? Because he's been angry <laughs> at the gnome. It's like a But he puts his hands around him and then he takes him and he runs him to open a door. <laughs> and he runs his head to open the door. <laughs> One of my favorites is the guy that's supposed to be, he's a, he's a salesman. Mm. And he comes in and he wants to have dinner, but he keeps going, I've ordered the salad, take it oh, back. Yes. And, and Basil hates him and starts choking him, but making out that he's not choking him. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that bit of physical interaction is just absolutely I think genius. my two favorite, I mean, the because I hadn't come across the silly walk from Monty Python yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we grew up on, and I should say, this was on TV all the time, it was on ABC, and then it moved to Channel 7. It was constantly playing. Faulty Towers was one of the big hits of Australian television as well in reruns, yeah. and we had all the tapes. And I remember it was one of the first books I ever got was just a list of scripts, like the scripts yeah, from right. the show. Uh, but it, it would play all the time. So I had not seen the silly walks by Monty Python and the Minister of Silly Walks sketch, but he does do, when he's doing the Germans in the episode, <laughs> The Germans, <laughs> he then pretends to do the, you know, the what do they call it, the goose step, the, the goose step, yeah, yeah, the, the goose Hitler step. walk, <laughs> and and he uses his massively long legs to great advantage. But what about that. when he comes to the end of the first lap of the walk? Um, that that really funny thing from the, the, like the Minister of Silly Walks. Yeah, he yeah. does a pirouette yeah. that kicks his leg up. Well, he does a pirouette with, uh, almost with his leg extended or something <laughs> like that. So, and then my and other really favorite deft maneuver of, yeah. of physical comedy is is upstairs running around with the dead body and they're trying to hide the dead body, <laughs> and he he they they're just going from room to room with this dead yep. body and the sheet keeps falling off. I, th- I think that's very funny. And how, in, how much is that riffed on over and over again in other movies, oh, yeah, TV yeah. shows? The dead body that you got to hide. Or the hotel guests will see it, or somebody mm. will. I wanted to ask, what did you guys make of? There was a Faulty Towers um, controversy. Well, it was, it's a John Cleese controversy. It was John Cleese, but Fawlty at the same Fawlty. time, people started criticizing Faulty Towers yeah. because um, for the major, right, and and the kind of racial stuff. And mm. John Cleese came out and said, "Like, what is going on here? 
we did that because we thought that was a criticism of a particular kind of British personality. Yeah. You know, we were aware of the satirical aspects of it. And I thought, hey, good for you. That, like, Can't forget like, that he also preemptively cancelled himself, yeah, cancelled himself yeah. at an yeah. engagement where he was due to perform his following. He's, he's also, he said some problematic things that yeah, should be cancelled for. Since no, no, then. No, but absolutely. I do think that the character of Major is someone who had been shell-shocked in the war yeah. and had also been the way that the British military machine turns them, even though he was like a major. Yeah. He was still extremely racist purely because it was the enemy. And dressed know? in his blazer, yeah. he's also a raging alcoholic. The guy keeps on going back yes. to drinks. Yes. So there's a, there's, a, there's a satirical aspect to all of the characters. What about when John Cleese says, um, Major, there are some Germans coming later to ten. Major says, Germans! Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> John Cleese says, Major, come on, forget, you know, forgive and forget. Mm. And that just becomes the basis to this wonderful story, you know, this wonderful satire on, you know, German guilt as well, which yeah, was a big yeah. thing in the 70s. Um, when John Cleese moved on to something like A Fish Called Wonder, which, you know, won Academy Awards and stuff like that, that was still written by John Cleese, mm. you know. So the guy continues and continues to be very successful. So when you look at what's happened now, it's kind of a shame. Like, I, for, not for good or for bad or whatever's happened, it's a little bit of a shame that there's an entire class of comedy that, you know, can't really exist in conversation at the moment. If you go back to Monty Python, all of that stuff, it's all cancelled. Well, I think we're going to get on to that with our, our yeah. episodes today. This is a good, I just, actually, um, segue yeah. into, into Borat. Uh, things do change. And Crocodile Dundee, I should Yeah, say. absolutely. <laughs> but um, I just want to say that uh, Faulty Towers continues to be rated usually as the top British sitcom of all time. And in, without Faulty Towers, the there's no The Office UK, for example. It's yeah. impossible. I I've got too much to do. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. <laughs> So, it's all forgotten now and let's hear no more about it. Will you stop talking about the war? Me? You started it? We did not start it. Yes, you did. You invaded Poland. <laughs> all right, that's it for Faulty Towers. It was a show that we loved growing up and um, we would still recommend it. Of course, it is, it is of its time, which is what you would say for a lot of comedy, but some of it is still hilarious purely because of physicalness and the relationship between the characters. I find it funny, not just because of what they're saying, which a lot of is all most of comedy these days, or, you know, it's inappropriate to say that and it made you laugh. But in this case, it's funny also because it's really, it plugs into a lot of traditional clown and... Yeah. Committed to I like that really yeah. Alright, that's it I just want to shout out to a, a student, An ex-student of mine who listens to the show Her name is Jackie um, She uh, reached out after 20 years <laughs> To say thank you That she's been listening to the podcast And she that's loves great. the Western Sydney memories she's, She grew up in She's working in St. <laughs> Clair a lot with her dog grooming business um, In St. Clair But she pointed out that we haven't talked about the Roxy Cinema of Parramatta, mm. which was an, a very old building. It was like built in, uh, maybe it was the turn of 18th, 19th century. And as yes, I just remember right. it being it was as soon as you cinema. mentioned this the other day while we were driving, yeah. then Bruce and I said, that's where we saw Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah, yeah so there you like, go. We yeah. do remember seeing a movie is, there, Mr. Holland's Opus. And I Opus. immediately then said, uh -oh. add that to our list of unwatchables. <laughs> you know, because we're building up a list, Goodwill Hunting. Um, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, but hasn't Richard Dreyfus become fascinating though? Really fascinating man in his old age. Can I just quickly say, yes. did you know that Richard Dreyfus recently said <laughs> that because of cancel... the whole world knows. <laughs> because of cancel culture, I will, quote, never be able to play a black man. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, like, what a 
lines. And I, also, it's not like people are lining up to employ Richard Dreyfus currently. To play a black yeah. man. <laughs> now, I don't know. Our listeners probably don't know this, but there's a wonderful little um, story uh, about the filming of Jaws <laughs> where Robert Shaw supposedly bullied the hell out of Richard Dreyfus <laughs> to the extent that he carried that with him for years. And well, he, is would, that true? he would never he would never associate with anything to do with Robert Shaw wow. and on the boat. Uh, so, well, supposedly, okay, he um, Richard Dreyfus would be standing. You know the, the boat from Jaws, right? Mm-hmm. He'd be standing on the second level. Yeah. Dreyfus is below. He's going, Dreyfus, get up on the mast. Get higher on the mast. <laughs> and Dreyfus just getting mangled by and uh, you know a, a an alcoholic uh, <laughs> white Angry colossal of a man. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's great. All right, as always, today's episode will feature spoilers for both films, which probably doesn't matter considering so much of both films have seeped into the public consciousness. But uh, if you don't want the endings ruined, uh, you should watch them first. If other films pop up along the way, we will do our best not to spoil them. All right, let's get on to it. Take one. Up first on today's show, it's Crocodile Dundee from 1986. Australian comedian Paul Hogan had spent the first few decades of his life working as a labourer, most famously on the Harbour Bridge, before appearing on a talent show named New Faces. Now, younger audiences might remember the parody of New Faces on Hey Hey Saturday called Red Faces uh, that we grew up with. Hogan was soon given his own primetime TV sketch show that ran for 60 episodes over 10 years. In 1986, he co-wrote and starred in his first feature film, Crocodile Dundee, and enlisted his TV-directing mate, Peter Fairman, to direct. Crocodile Dundee is the story of a fancy New York City journalist played by Linda Kozlowski, who travels to the Australian outback to meet up with a man who has wrestled with a crocodile and survived. When she meets Mick Crocodile Dundee, she soon discovers a strange blend of laid-back larrigan, try-hard machismo, and mythical Australiana. They spend the next few days bonding together in the outback. Mick proves himself to be small-minded, but in a charming way. So Sue invites him to New York City. The second half of the film then becomes a fish-out-of-water-meets-romantic comedy as Mick brings his no-nonsense sensibilities to the city and makes the highfalutin journalist leave her judgmental boyfriend and fall in love with him. The film is light years ahead of the off-the-cuff based sketch comedy that the team had been producing for the previous decade. It was shot by Russell Boyd, who also shot Picnic at Hanging Rock and Master and Commander, and he managed to make every shot look like a commercial for either Australia or New York. The film (laughs) became box office gold, outgrossing E.T. in Australia. Paramount Pictures picked it up for a US theatrical release where it outgrossed Mad Max 2 and became the second highest grossing film of 1986 in America and around the world. Second to only... Wait. Uh, 1986? Gremlins? Beverly Hills Back to the Future? Top Gun. Top Whoa, Gun. Okay. Ah, yes. All right. It outgrows films such as Aliens, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, What? The Color Purple, and Star Trek Four. I like that you that you're saying that in your promo because people need to understand what this movie was box uh-huh. office I'm wise. getting uh, yeah. nothing, nothing box like numbers it. Or anything, yeah. but it's unbelievable all right yeah. the film was nominated for an Oscar in screenwriting and Paul Hogan won a Golden Globe for his performance I didn't know that uh-huh. did he turn up in his like crocodile no didn't he singlet and well didn't he he presented awesome. one of the Oscars as well uh, he came out and did a I thing think, at the Oscars yeah, that year this was wow. such a big deal it was so big yeah. it, like we can't explain how this was a phenomenon mm. 
As is often the way with both this film and Borat, social values have changed and what people find funny and acceptable has also shifted. So although this is one of Australia's biggest filmmaking achievements as a comedy, it gets less and less funny with each year that passes. Herschel, do you still find this film funny and what's your take on Crocodile Dundee? I want to start with two little anecdotes. As you, I do like starting with, with a good anecdote. All right? now, <laughs> well, it's um, important also to explain how big this was and what yeah. it meant to so, everyone. So that's, first thing I want to say is that Bruce and I were new arrivals in Australia with our family. <laughs> I think we only been here for like six weeks. Yeah, maybe. something like that. So then Crocodile Dundee came out. You guys are and like, um, they're a weird mob, that film. Yeah, but he also... That's thing, exactly what yeah, we were. Yeah. But the thing is, we were the fish out of water. My whole family was the yeah. fish out of water. So when Bruce and I went to school, for example, people thought we looked weird and we talked weird and all that sort of thing. Um, we still got a bit of an accent, but I've, I vividly remember somebody, she was like speaking with this weird inflection because she thought that I'd understand it a little bit better or something like that. So we were... <laughs> are you serious? Yes, yes. So we were fish out of water. Now, we had a love of movies from the very beginning because... My first little anecdote is we were watching Entertainment Tonight, all right? The extent to which Crocodile Dundee was finding uh, an audience in the United States was, do you both remember how to market a movie? It doesn't happen nowadays, but to market a movie, they do little interviews with people coming out of the cinema. And yeah. they go, what oh, did you think yeah. of it as well? I remember they did a famous one, The Dances with Wolves. Yes. And so... <laughs> um, so uh, they go up to these... Wait, wasn't there another famous one where they said it's better than Dancing? Oh, no, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Robin Hood Princess Z's. And this it. guy comes out. Oh, the guy looks right. exactly yeah, like yeah, your yeah. dad. Yeah. Remember, and he just goes, oh, it's better than Dances of Wolves. Yeah, it was yeah. a marketing campaign. They'd make a commercial out of people coming out of the cinema exactly. explaining what they thought of the movie. They did this. They should do that with, again. Well, they did this with that. Crocodile Dundee. Now, they well, wait, up, can I just say the last time that I remember that was Paranormal Activity. And it was part of the slow, slow release of that film as they used college kids' footage of them reacting to the film. And then they cut trailers out of that and they said, if you want this movie to come to your town. This is before they went wide with it and it became huge. Yeah. Sorry, go on, Herschel. Okay, so they did this um, for Crocodile Dundee. And one stuck out for me. They come up to these two guys. These, well, they, they're young. They're adolescents, mm-hmm. like 16, 17. They're kind of like the college jocks out of Borat that we might talk about later. Yeah. And they go, um, so you just come out of Crocodile Dundee. What do you think? And in, with incredible passion, this kid says, that's the best movie I've ever seen. Um, it's also the thirteenth time I've seen Crocodile Whoa. Dundee, and I'm gonna go back and see it again and again because Wait, this is an American, kid. An, an American thing, an American thing. Wow, wow. And so when you know when people said the reason Titanic became number one in the world because statistically speaking, about sixty percent of everyone who saw Titanic saw it again. Mm. Yeah, like when they did the focus groups and stuff. Yeah. Crocodile Dundee had a thing about it that was unlike, I think, unlike. Most things that we'd ever seen at that stage. Well, certainly it's unlike any Australian film ever made. Oh, yeah. Like now, it. as a result, Bruce, you and I went with our mum and Auntie Yvonne to go watch Crocodile mm-hmm. Dundee. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Auntie Yvonne was the one who said, hey, we got to go see this movie. She was really excited. Because we, like, so we're new to the country. We should say our Auntie Yvonne and Uncle Willie sponsored us to come from because we were coloured in South Africa and you That's couldn't right. immigrate like, for high water. And if we didn't have those people over here, we would never have got the points to get over here. So how we did were I, living with How them. did they get here? I, that was years ago, but a, 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 a bit before that, where yeah. times like we immigrated out of the extremely tumultuous times of the sort of last phase of apartheid. Yeah, they were preceding that, where there was a degree of stability. They'd already been ah. in Australia for like maybe seven, eight years, and also there was a move like from that. the. 
from valuing the blue collar worker to the service industry white collar worker. Mm -hmm. So um, our parents, um, blue, -collar. blue collar workers. So it, it was more difficult to immigrate with those uh, skill sets as opposed to the white yeah. collar. So there was a big transition in that to um, you know to get onto. Um, Workplace politics, but um, <laughs> so <laughs> so we go to the movies. You just look like you've been shell shocked. Then you're just staring off, going, "Oh my god, I'm back at work." <laughs> so we come out of the movies, and we're kind of like looking at each other, going, "Like, wh what was that?" Like, we, yeah. we couldn't really understand what the hell we had seen. Wow. And I remember now. There's a colloquial sort of term in Afrikaans called <laughs> "straunt," which means shit. Yes. <laughs> and my my mum said, "That's a ball of straunt." Yeah. But also my Auntie Yvonne hated it. So Whoa. my my mum and Auntie Yvonne didn't get the humour, mm. thought Paul Hogan was an idiot, mm -hmm. couldn't understand what was going on with Mick Dundee. And this was... It's hard to even communicate how different the humour is for a coloured South African <laughs> and a white Australian. The only thing that so made sense to them was New York, Bruce. They could understand New York. They got the, okay, so my, 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 my Auntie Yvonne, I remember vividly, she said... The movie only got, like, the only thing that was something interesting was when they got to America. Mm. The whole Australianisms, like, in the outback, they just thought they were idiots. And there's the irony of it, because that's what resonated with the United States and the international yep. release, right? So I couldn't believe, when watching it again, that the, it's more—it's almost half the film is in the outback. Yep. Uh, from my memory, I mean, I that's only like the little bit at the beginning. I think the film weakens dramatically when it gets. I to agree. The, the aside Australian from the iconic scenes, that's an, this, that's not a nice. This yeah. is, aside from the iconic scenes and where Paul Hogan mm. punches the dude at the at the restaurant. Yep. Aside oh, from this is a knife. Yeah. Like you know, that's not a knife. That's it. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah so aside right, from yeah. those scenes. Okay, wait, before you go, on, I want to say. Um, I saw it with, at Penrith Hayden mm -hmm. with my grandmother, Nana Kelly. Mm. She took us because Foot Rot Flats, the movie, was on. And it was a double feature. It was a, it was two for one on a Saturday. And we got to see Foot Rot Flats. Uh, and she thought it was a cartoon. But she wasn't ready for the um, the crudity of that. It was a New Zealand cartoon. It was called A Dog's Tale was the surtitle or whatever. And it, was, uh, it wasn't a great movie. But then Crocodile Dundee, she said, all right, I guess we can stay for this because she wasn't impressed by Foot Rot Flats. Yeah. And then Crocodile Dundee, I remember her crying at the end of. I have yeah, no yeah. yeah. And there's like an 80-year-old woman. Or yeah, she would have been 70 or something. But she grew up in housing commission. She lived in housing commission at the time. And she was just so deeply affected by the Australianness of it, or whatever it is that, I mean, that ends. I think we should also say it means something to Australia mm. to have an Australian product going global. Right? Oh, like, yeah. You know, like, it's no different to, I reckon, there's some lovely accounts of people in Italy post-war when they would watch Italian neorealism and they would say things like, they they put projector screens like on um, like in Italian towns and then mm. like screen movies like on the walls, and people would say that was the first time we ever saw our lives up on a screen. I think this meant volumes for people in Australia to go, whoa, look how important we are to the U.S. Look what Hollywood's making yeah, of Australia. Yeah, yeah. But aside yeah. from that, it's not just uh, you know like a, a imagery for the United States. The first half of the movie is beautiful. It's mm. I, I I loved seeing the first half of the mm. movie. Just the the expression of the outback and the ruggedness of it and the wide shots that they do. It's it's even like there was a shot where Sir Paul Hogan's buddy in the movie, I've forgotten his name, but John Millian, John Millian. is brilliant yeah. in it. Yeah. He comes driving so the, the car comes driving past and in the background you've got the, the, the panoramic outback. Just a simple shot like that captured for me why the first half of, of Crocodile Dundee stands the test of time. The other thing is, and people don't talk about this much, right? So in real life, we now, obviously, it's famous now that 
Paul Hogan and Linda Kozlowski, Paul Hogan left his wife and married Linda Kozlowski. Mm -hmm. And they were together. Has Paul Hogan died? No, no, no. Not yet. They're still together. Or are they still no, together? No, 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 they divorced sort of Well, they were yeah. together for like 25 years, all mm -hmm. right? So the chemistry that they have on scene is a genuine chemistry. Yeah. So is I, it a My mum was outraged. I remember that. She was like, I can't... Like, she was annoyed that he had moved on... From his wife. Yeah, 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 with this big Hollywood actor. Now he thinks he's too good. It was tall poppy at work, really. Isn't yeah. it something... Because that, that was a big thing in the Australian media. That yeah. was on, like, Women's Day. Everything was yeah, going, right. whoa, Paul Hogan lo 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 um, leaves his wife. Yeah. For the American. Mm. It was usually, it was like Charles and Di going, and yeah. Charles did the interview going, you know, I had an affair. But isn't it, isn't it important also to view this as something of a tender love story? It's, it's a really lovely love story. Mm. I agree. I, I like what you say about the chemistry between them. I think that's, you know, rom-coms need that chemistry. Mm. Right? Whether it's Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. If you don't make that work, then well, look, what am I watching it for? Um, Can I just say, I'm yeah. surprised, uh, like, the, the structure of this film is so bizarre. Yeah. I, I can't well, think Well, it's a movie it. in two parts, right? Well, it's that's two right. movies. But the first half, it could be like, they could be uh, uh, the floods, the rains could come. You know, something big could happen and it can be a disaster. And then he has to save it and then they get married at the end, right? Mm. And they are in love. That's how it could have gone. It could have been anything. It could be an action thing. But it turns into this bizarre... Midnight Cowboy slash Borat slash, you know. I've never like, thought of Midnight Cowboy related to this, but you're so right. But it's, it's, well, I, we, I came to that because watching Borat now yeah. and hearing that music in that montage, <laughs> I'm like, oh, hang on, that's the same thing. Crocodile Dundee is a, a bloke who doesn't know what he's doing. Yep. And same thing, cowboy hat, it's also cowboy boots, walking around. Can I just say that's a fantastic reading because if you think about it, I mean, I'm sure we'll get in a second into the politics of Crocodile Dundee, which mm -hmm. is fascinating, but... Um, Midnight Cowboys, of course, the John Voight, Joe Buck character, is leaving small town Texas. Yeah. And he's repressed sexually um, in terms of his class, in terms of his history. Yeah. And hits New York and discovers the the sort of the underbed of everything like, bubbling in that city. Yeah. Whereas um, Mick comes to New York and instead of being swallowed by New York, it's almost like he subdues New York. Well, he, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Dominate, well, he dominates he, New he, York. He, he romances the mm -hmm. city. So it's almost as if the outback is recoding the city itself. Yeah. And it's about um, what about when he the comes importance back? of being uncivilized. What about when he comes uncultured. back on the horse and he comes back to his hotel? Oh, that, I mean, did you, great. So, again, did, did this make me... Clever I cracked up, okay? Yeah. Um, he gets off the horse mm. and the cop <laughs> goes, <laughs> here you go, Mick. And he hands him a Rambo knife. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And you're yeah. going, wow, that doesn't happen anymore. But even like um, there's a moment where he's in the cab and it's early on in that montage and he just leans out like a, to a new, you know, a New York trader who's fast talking on the sidewalk and he goes, G'day, mate, I'm from Australia, you know, and, and he's having a conversation with a bloke who doesn't, but he's not offended. It's not like Borat where it's yeah. like Borat does something ridiculous. It's like, Yep, okay, cool. I yeah. might see you around. And then the car and, drives off. And, and it's also, kind of like a polite, it's like a very, it is Australian. It, that's how, you know, most And it's talk. supposed to, you know, this is also the era of, so Wall Street's 1986 as well, yeah. right? So if you think, or 87. Well, that's what that dude's, um, but he's the Wall Street but, archetype. Right, and so we're entering a time of people are suspicious of um, we're losing our sense of connection to each other. Mm -hmm. We're just all money, 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 the rat race. Here comes Mick. Yeah. And Mick's just like strolling around, you know. <laughs> so he brings a different kind of living in the moment. Mm. But instead, as you say, people making fun of him, they warm to him. And the train station conclusion is brilliant on so many <laughs> levels because it is the perfect um, be more like me. 
like like learn from what I what I yeah. bring. I'm I'm earthy. I'm honest. I'm authentic. But, I'm not all also, the trappings of civilization. The, the see it as well. It's kind of like a, I think a metaphor for the rest of the thing. Um, you know how they're using two sides of the platform to communicate the mm. messaging, right? So Mick is a thing that links it all. <laughs> Mick. Through Mick, mm. everybody gets expression. Yeah, mm. and him arriving in New York, he gives New York meaning, but not just yeah. meaning, like a higher moral platitude than New York otherwise had in the mid '80s, which was yeah. the town of excess. Totally, because in the mid '80s as well, we're coming on a period of New York was in a lot of trouble financially in the late 1970s. It's kind of you know we've got taxi driver '76, right? Mm-hmm. So they've had many years of, of difficulty. Well, Rudy, Rudy makes, Giuliani was about to come in and clean that town. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it makes is what Mick teaches New Yorkies if you were just a little bit more like us in Australia, mm. you would be re-energized by these like primal things, the land, for example. I mean, I want to come back to that notion of the land, which is so interesting yeah, I, in yeah. a historical context. That, yeah. the, the second last thing I, want, I got in my notes every year is, I didn't know who Paul Hogan was. Bruce and I are family. We oh, never heard kids. of Paul yeah, Hogan. Right. Paul, yeah. Wait. Paul, Paul Nogan? We never heard of Paul <laughs> Nogan. We never heard of Paul Hogan, right? Now, wait, I want to say for other listeners, when I talked about him being on TV and all of that sketch show, me at that age, same age as you boys, but we knew Paul Hogan. Yeah. We were watching Paul Hogan. We were sharing tapes of Paul Hogan. Paul Hogan was everywhere. All what was that ad he used to do? He, used to um, he did a Winfield. Anyhow. Put on the shoe, put a bar on the bar. He's one of the very famous. And now Herschel obviously he didn't started know who he was. doing Foster's. He was just everywhere. Yeah. and he was the funny guy. That everyone knew. Now the thing that Hogan's got in this movie is he really oozes that kind of charisma of the successful leading men yeah. of the time. Especially so it's the a 80s. very particular Larrican charisma. It's, it's a right? Larrican yeah. charisma. Well, I was watching him thinking of. Because we just did uh, Clint Eastwood in, uh, I was seeing a lot of Clint Eastwood in his face. Well, there's and stuff, a lot. You know? I, do, I I occasionally teach Crocodile Dundee, and what I like doing is trying to compare the kind of political relationship to, um, like the land and nature to mm. the American Western. Mm. Yeah, because it's pulling in a lot of tropes, from, I, but it also needs to make sure. Yes, it's the American West, but I'm going to recode that as an Australian outback. In my, in my notes, I... You, wait, can I just say, do you think it's successful? In, uh, doing completely that? successful. Yeah, I think it does it really well. I like what you said before. It became something of an ad for the the, the state of nature in Australia. Mm. Go to I once taught a whole bunch of uh, um, exchange students from Boston, and they said to me, um, we couldn't believe when we got you. We thought it was going to be like this open land. <laughs> and I was going, what are you talking about? And they, so to me, it was like, yeah. like I'm living, we're living in Sydney. right? Sydney's a... a a huge geopolitical place, right? Mm. They honestly thought that they'd be going down the street, there'd be kangaroos on the side. And I said, why? And they said, because of Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. They were like those, they'd seen Crocodile Dundee yeah. and it was a, a, a like a touchstone for them of what is the Australian like land, right? Mixed character. So Paul Hogan has got, he's oozing charisma in this movie. So he's obviously a talent, right? But it's also, lo- <laughs> it's written in a way where Paul, you can tell Paul Hogan and the co-writers, they were confident in the product because the product was coming from stuff they'd mm. done before. Yeah. So do you remember when they're in the early bar scene and he's and he's dancing with Linda Kozlowski and then the dude's insulting him saying like you're a poacher and stuff like that. Mm. And then he's doing <laughs> he's doing turns with Linda Kozlowski and he does one turn and he goes shit for brains and then he does another <laughs> turn and in turning, so she can't see what he's doing, he turns and his arm is made into a fist and then he just punches him and keeps yeah. dancing. 
I mean, and, and that's such a, and there's such a long history of those sorts of physical tropes, right? In in, mm. in comedy, in in musicals. Paul Hogan said before the release of the film, when they were interviewing him, I've read this, you know, when I was doing research on it. He was pretty much saying this is going to be the first globally successful Australian film. And people would say to him, why do you think that? And he goes, because it's the first movie where, I mean, you know, for want of a better phrase, like we, 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 we sort of getting our heads out of our ass, like which is an Australian mm-hmm. colloquialism, right? We're just trying to make a film that people will like. And he was going, I guarantee you people are going to love this. And that was before it got released. So he was yeah, wow. consciously attempting. He was pretty much saying, we're in Australia, but we only make these Australian iconographic movies. And why intellectual don't we just, movies. Why don't we just intellectual make, background. He was pretty much saying, why don't we just make a global like phenomenon of a movie and use Australia? He did it and worked. See, I yeah. think Paul Hogan portrayed himself and Mick Dundee. And in my notes, I have um, as a moral figure but with a devil-may-care attitude. And that resonated mm. with a bunch of people. Somebody who wore their heart on their sleeve, and it was powerful. In much the same way Donald Trump is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to raise, what do you guys think of this? Like, whenever I watch the movie, uh, I find it an interesting snapshot of mid-1980s Australia. So in that era, we've, we've got a Labour government, a progressive government in at that time. Right? When Herschel and I got you, Bob Hawke was like the biggest thing. Mm. He, in fact, was a He had aspects of Mick Dundee in him. Bob Hawke still holds the world record for the fastest sculling of a beer mm. uh, at Oxford University, right? So and that was the kind of larrikinism. at the cricket. Yeah, like, on TV when he was about 80. Yeah. That was like well, three well, years was before it 1983, the... the America's Cup. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. That kind of populism, which we've now seen Trump all over the place, um, was attached to social Labour Party in the mid-1980s when Herschel and I got here. Mm. So... Some of the big themes that were running at the time was what was going to be the relationship to like indigenous Australia, Mm -hmm. to Aboriginal Australia? Because this movie was in the outback. And one of the big storylines is Mick was in fact raised by one of the Aboriginal tribes. That's that's his character. He was raised by them, right? Mm. So I what do you guys make of this conversation? It's fascinating where Linda Koslowski says, Well, you know, you can't just be, you know, he goes, I don't think about politics. She goes, Well, Everyone has to think about politics. It's your responsibility. And she says, what do you think about, for example, the, the Aboriginal land rights claims? That, and, and he says this, and I always remember it. Um, he says, no, nah, you see, people don't get the way Aboriginal Australia thinks about land. They don't own the land. The land is in them. Now, there seems something quite noble in that characterization mm-hmm. of the land, but it also gives you license to say, let's dismiss land claims. Mm. And that to me seemed a part of the 1980s as well. This incredible political, like it was pretty incendiary, right? You had people going, but we're going to lose our houses. And, and because the, the lines just before that as well, are, uh, do you have a protest? And he goes, only when I get thrown out of a pub. Yeah. And then the next one is, what about nuclear r- r- debate? And he says, it's none of my business. Yep. And she goes, but you've got to have a voice. Yep. And I think that was an excellent thing. That is an international, or especially an American point of view on Australia at that time. And I still, unfortunately, feel like now always Australian, there is that thing, don't be political, mate. Yeah. Like, you, you, like take it easy. Yeah, like it's almost like tall poppy of don't stick your head out because you've got a political opinion. Yeah. And you've got to stick with the status quo. It's like this constant way of suppressing new ideas, new thoughts, anyone that... But you know, don't you think ultimately, though, what the reporter 
the political, yeah. small L liberal, you know, news person learns is that it's okay just to be chilled, just to be the larrikin, just to hang out. Like, you don't need to engage in that way. And Mick seems to be the person who brings happiness Oh, no, I do think that's what this movie says. Yeah, Yeah, and the movie does an excellent job of going, hey, look how you can be zen if you just go, don't worry about it, mate. (laughs) She'll be right. Aboriginal land rights, just be zen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're zen, I'll be zen. Uh, And I like the fact that she goes, whoa, you gotta have an opinion. And then what he does, he codes the relationship to land Mm. in a very particular political way. And I think that's a snapshot of 1986. And ironically, I mean, for Herschel, Craig and I, uh, uh, for people overseas... We just had a huge referendum on Sunday uh, to give Mm. Indigenous Australians a voice uh, to Parliament, and that failed. And it's an indication of the degree to which these things are massively still debated and huge tensions in Australia. But, you see, when I I saw um, Croc Dundee again and that the depiction of the, you know, Indigenous communities, you know, where Mick... It dances with the communion mm. where she's photographing it. Now it would be, you know, you really couldn't depict that at all. But I thought that the actually, for 1986, the, the depiction of Aboriginal um, culture, I think that was ahead of its time. Ma- uh, oh, massively. I, I was, was going to say, I was ready to be like, oh boy, here we go. When yeah. they started moving on to that, I was like, this is where the movie no longer can <laughs> yeah. be watched. But it wasn't as bad as I thought, that's for sure. I didn't think it was bad. I, I, think I, was, I, think I completely agree. It was almost dismissive in a, in a way that was like... One of the most eloquent sidestepping, like as you Completely. say, Bruce, of that issue. It was a sidestepping of the issue, mm. but at the same time, the nature of the representation was, I agree with you, yeah, Rachel, see, decades think, ahead of its time. I oh, will good, say, say, a film that I think fails to do anything meaningful or authentic in the way that this film did mm. is something like Baz Luhrmann's Australia. I think Australia gets it completely wrong. It becomes completely paternalistic. And I'm going to be so cautious that like to be nice to Dundee I think and Paul Hogan they have a much more like I think Paul Hogan has a much more authentic and um, meaningful depiction of the relationship of white Australia to Aboriginal Australia than a movie like Australia, okay. which is the Baz Luhrmann film. All right, well, there it is. Baz, if you're listening, please come on the show. We'd love to have a chat with Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I did love Elvis. So, Baz, if you want to come and talk about Elvis. Oh, let's talk about Elvis and maybe throw in a few Australian questions. All right, let's move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is 2006's Borat. British comedian Sasha Baron Cohen had been making waves with his satirical comedy character Ali G, a street-talking ruffian who hosted a semi-fictional show that featured mockumentary segments of him interviewing British and American politicians and academics. During this time, he developed multiple characters, one being a European reporter by the name of Borat. In 2002, Cohen starred in an Ali G film which featured no mockumentary footage. Then, in 2006, Cohen enlisted Seinfeld director Larry Charles to direct a mockumentary starring Borat. The story sees the fictional Ministry of Information from the very non-fictional country of Kazakhstan send fictional reporter Borat, played by Sacha Baron Cohen, to the USA charged with the mission of documenting what makes the United States the greatest country in the world. Along the way, he's confronted by differences in attitudes, manners, social graces, and eventually 
loses the support of his travelling companion. Alone and broken, he continues to pursue his misguided love for famous television actress Pamela Anderson until he confronts her and tries to put her in a bag <laughs> and marry her. <laughs> that doesn't work out, so he returns to the woman Lunel, who he had met earlier in the film, makes her his wife and returns to Kazakhstan. I love that Linnell's now in Kazakhstan. <laughs> the entire film is presented as if it is a documentary shot on the fly and post-produced by the fictional Kazakhstan television network that Borat works for. Most of the actual film was shot with members of the public who had been swindled into the fiction that the filmmakers are attempting to create. This allows comedian Baron Cohen and director Larry Charles to expose the questionable values of many of the unaware participants. The film turned its $18 million budget into $260 million worldwide and was lauded by critics around the world. As this was the dawn of social media, Borat went viral, whether it be on the newly invented YouTube, LimeWire, or just plain old recorded physical media. Just like Crocodile Dundee, the film was nominated for an Oscar for screenwriting and Sacha Baron Cohen won the Golden Globe for his performance. Despite its popularity, the film attracted criticism and lawsuits from unaware participants, comedy fans, and an entire nation. (laughs) (laughs) Activists from all sides of the political spectrum were also outraged. Bruce, as someone who's written many books on film, I'm surprised (laughs) that you wanted to sum this film up in just two words. That's very nice. Very nice. <laughs> hey, can I just say, for in my own defence, Craig came up with this idea for doing Borat, uh, and I don't know what to say about this movie. Well, my point of struggle. entry, my yep. point of entry is this. So, two things I want to. So, to add something to what Craig just said, yes, it's critical to note that a lot of people were filmed under false pretenses, mm-hmm. right? Secondly, all of the key scenes, all the key scenes involve right. people who uh, subsequently unwitting engaged legal advice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I do want to say, so people might then go, yeah, but okay, but why did they do it? Why did they do it? Because they were under the false idea that they were making this documentary with this lovely man, charming, Borat, and he is a fish out of water. And uh, like, hey, and there's something patronizing about it. As Americans, we can show you how we live and we can try and civilize you in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But it's right? a universal quantity to it's want a, to take someone under your course. wing if so, they've been that disadvantaged. Now, this is what these people <laughs> believe, like the, the Jewish couple, for example. This is what they think is going on, right? And I want to add, though, everybody who <laughs> was... An unwitting participant had to sign a legal waiver. Mm. But the legal waiver was to say simply, you cannot sue us for the fact that we are filming. You have agreed to be part of our documentary, except they didn't understand what the nature exactly. of the documentary was. That I, I, now, that's a question about consent, right? Mm-hmm. They do consent, but it asks questions about the nature of consent because what they're consenting to is something that they are not engaged in. They don't know that, in fact, this is a satire slash, well, uh, we can debate satire. It's certainly a mockumentary mm-hmm. and not a documentary. So I just want to spend a second on that. Okay, so in in lots of aspects of law, but, but most clearly in the law of contract, there's a thing called misrepresentation. Now, <laughs> if you go up to someone and say, I'm going to do this for you, and this is in your best interest, but you're completely lying about what you're saying. <laughs> Not only that, after you actually produce what you said you were going to do, you've disadvantaged the other person, either financially or reputation-wise or something like that. You would be in a world of trouble. No, I see. Sasha Baron Cohen made $200 million out of 
this exchange. He didn't make it. He made the, well, the whatever, film, mate. Whatever, yeah. okay. you know. But I want to say that that's what a trickster does. That's what this is. Uh, this is where I have studied yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and taught yeah. in, in in comedy. And a trickster's job is to expose those problems, the cracks and stuff. So a pun is a problem that we laugh at because. It exposes that our language doesn't work right. Mm. And, and and then our brain goes, oh, that doesn't work right. And then the pun makes you laugh because there's a little moment of tension and fear. And then you laugh because it's not really a big problem. That's what a trickster does. That's what this film does. When they sign a contract that says, this is a documentary. We are documenting the, the, uh, the occasion of this person interacting with you. And we will cut it together. That even if you insert that on, happened, on like page 18 of a contract, on page 18 of <laughs> no, 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 a small print, but what you're Herschel, saying the is, sleight of hand though is that's precisely that's what they exactly did what do. they did. They didn't it's lie, not, yeah. but it's disingenuous at the very least. <laughs> yes, but what I'm saying is, how is this different to someone like Bernie Madoff who, who ripped off people for $80 billion? You just lied. That's but that's not. Did. I'm saying it's not a lie. They documented the experience. Now I could have acted if if I met Borat in that situation in 2006. I think I'd probably handle myself no, hang better. Wait, wait, I okay. wouldn't. I'm an, you know. I quibble with that. It's not a lie. It is a lie mm. if, on the face of it, you're saying this is what's happened, where in reality this is not what's happening. Mm. I mean, wait, that's, that's reality. Say, of there it. are three key things we need to discuss here. So this has been a great preamble to the conversation. All the right. question of the form of it itself and whether a documentary or a mockumentary requires like authenticity in a contract. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll keep talking about that. Number two, a second anecdote, right? Um, I, uh, I, I was just talking to... to oh, before yeah. you go, anyone can lie. Like, <laughs> the, the, I love the that you're so riled up, Craig. The contract isn't a lie. <laughs> You can say, if I misrepresent myself as a, a document participant who goes, I'm going to say this, but I don't actually think it, but I, that's how I feel. But you know, if it that's leads, fine. And that's what he's doing on the other side of it. if it leads to disadvantage, either financial or by reputation or something, you're going to have to pay for that. That's the nature of the contract. But they must have settled, those, some, they must have settled some of it, right? Because I'm, I'm saying financially. They, they, there's no way we'll all throw it out. <laughs> I'm, not for, a, course, I'm not for right? a moment saying I wasn't watching this movie and crying with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm not for a moment saying that. I want to come back to that. Okay, 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 so okay. Point number two. Um, one of my very, very good friends, a guy called Nikolai, who's not only fiercely intelligent, mm. but a real activist, and I have such admiration for him. We were once talking about comedy, and uh, uh, somehow Borat came up. This is several <laughs> years ago. So Nikolai just said to me, like, Borat's one of those movies I don't understand. He goes, how come everyone's okay with Borat? He goes, isn't it uh-huh. like the most racist movie ever made? Yeah. And I go, well, it's an interesting one because I've done a bit of reading about it. And I go, it is something that is really debated. But Nikolai, who is an activist and a really intelligent person, goes, yeah. I don't get this. I don't understand how we're okay with the depiction of like the like the, the Kazakhstani people. Yes. He goes, for, okay. So that's the other little anecdote I want to give. That there's another whole question of, is this film permitted to engage in this kind of representation. So that's the other question. And the last is to say exactly what Herschel said. How do I, rec- how do I reconcile the above with the fact that this is one of the most brilliant and funny films I've ever well, Bruce, seen? Well, Bruce, I saw this at your place. I mean, I've seen it before, but I saw it. At- Bruce and I were sitting there having a couple of beers. And then they got to the, rod- the rodeo scene. Mm, yeah. And then they interview <laughs> sure. that guy. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, he meets him and goes, um, you, uh, so We're trying you, to kill the homosexuals too. We're going <laughs> to get him out of here. What about when he's singing the national anthem? Yeah. Kazakhstan is the greatest country in the world. All of the countries 
are run by little girls. The stunned silence mm, yeah. of the audience Which, at uh, the now, rodeo. Now, that is uh, real, and that's documented, that that yeah. did actually happen, and it almost caused a massive riot. The family like, and, of the and Jewish... there was actually some danger around Bora. The yeah. family of the Jewish people at the B&B mm. um, that bring up these sandwiches and stuff like that, yeah. and he's going, there's a rat and everything coming out the door. No, no, it's the cockroaches. The cockroaches. Remember when he they've says turned, to they've changed form. Was it Azamat, uh, when he goes, look, they've changed form. Yeah. Look, and, and, and he he's throws dollars like, at them. And he's, throw, and he's oh. chucking money at the cockroaches. Like, it's just... Okay, so... But I, I like that. I like it because, well, I, for me, that's the least offensive moment because I know that he's Jewish. I'm, like no, he's no, practicing. I'm not saying he's intentionally no, no, but trying I to know, be racist. I'm, but I yeah. am saying, though, that that is an excellent scene that exposes, and, and that's the, yes, your second point about mm. is, is Kazakhstan. If that was blackface, if he was doing blackface. I've literally written you. Yeah. If you, the, 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 both the courageous and the provocative thing that Sasha Baron Cohen decides to do mm. is to go, I'm going to do a, a mockumentary. I'm going to try and satirize a whole bunch of stuff like the American political system, celebrity, yeah. Pamela Anderson. I'm going to try and do all that stuff. But I'm not going to be an American. Mm. I'm not going to be a Jewish yeah, American. I don't think that's courageous. Well, no, no, but what I want to say is I'm going to be the other. Yes. I'm going to become a Kazakhstani guy. Now, my question is, no, the reason I'm saying it's courageous actually is I don't think that's entirely successful because what happens is some of that stuff is, to me, incredibly offensive. The, that's the problem. So when I, I think that it, it becomes a problem when people take on that blackfaceness, mm. so to speak, that, that, that exactly representation, like the othering. Now, it's, similar, it's a similar dilemma, dilemma in the film The Party with Peter Sellers, yeah. right? Yeah. Where he plays <laughs> the Indian. In, this yeah. is in the late 60s. Yeah. He plays an Indian uh, So again, character. it's Sellers embodying the other yes. as the... Like as the core of the the satire, and, and that film is about highfalutin people getting a serve at someone who's very what would you but, humble and mm. and and polite and teaches them a lesson about themselves, similar to what Borat's intention is. Yeah, but the difference is, Craig, that's Peter, all fiction. The the Oriental in the party yeah. is ultimately is an exceptionally noble character. Yes, the other, from Sasha Baron Cohen's <laughs> point of view, is I've written here. Um, well, misogynist, sex crazed. They, okay, uh, so they're backward. Mm. They're uncivilized in the Western sense. They're uneducated. They're incestuous. They're rapists. Rapists. They're stupid. And critically, they're dirty. Mm. Now, if you think about that as a set of tropes in terms of the self and the other, or if we think about Edward Said, or we think about the whole history of Orientalism as a discourse, it's a v like I can't imagine if any of my post-colonial buddies scholars came here and I said to them, "How do you feel about that?" Mm. I don't know anybody who'd go, "I'm okay with that." <laughs> I, I think they would say, "Whoa, this is such a retrograde yeah. film politically." Okay, right? so if you just apply like any sort of ethical, I just want to say, if you're interested in Orientalism, go back to our Agatha Christie meets yeah. Knives Out because you you discuss absolutely. That so, with so and, and, and it's that's a really nice point of view, which is to say, this well, is I'm not just trying to get more listens on our uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is not just a thing of like Borat. Yeah, this is a long debate about. As Westerners, as the dominant, you know, a guy called Gramsci called it hegemonic, right? The dominant. We control the images, the text, the, the, the meanings. Am I able to just go, I'm going to make fun of you guys over there, right? Mm. I, I, are you allowed to do no, that? No, because, okay, so 
if you use like a, a common thing in, in, in legal ethics, if you use the equal treatment principle, what that, that says. Okay, good. Because I was about to say, not everybody knows what that is. Exactly. I so mean, this... obviously I do, because I do a lot of reading about legal stuff, <laughs> but I'd love you to explain it to our audience. <laughs> this, goes, this goes miles back through all ethics. You can go back to the beginning of ethics. But, for example, if you read someone like Immanuel Kant from philosophy, mm-hmm. he would say that, you know, you treat others as you would treat yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, if I took the equal treatment And another principle, famous person said that. Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus, baby. Okay. So, so <laughs> JC up front. Now, if you take Borat and you trans and, and, and you transpose Borat onto, let's pick any other random culture, there are some cultures that you can't do it to because that would be considered racist. Mm. My point is, if if any culture would consider it racist, you can't do it to any culture that's at all. that's what Nikolai's position was. He was literally saying to me, I don't understand what's going on with Borat. Mm. Like, he would say, I don't get how you can just go... This is Kazakhstan. Now, I should I mean, also say... How do the Kazakhstani say, people feel? No, well, they sued him, right? But from the, from the Sasha Baron Cohen's point of view, I do want to say the language is not Kazakhstani. Yes. Right? The, I could, the, like the, the, the text, the Cyrillic, is not Kazakhstani. Mm. So there's a kind of bricolage aspect to this movie, which is to say, I don't think Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen has a political agenda to make people from Kazakhstan look bad. No, but okay, so I, I it's sort of, the nature of the representation itself that... I think a lot of people took offense to. But people have, for example, subsequent, you know, through the, through the break of the Soviet Union, and you had a whole bunch of places with Stan at the end, mm-hmm. all right? So people, for comedy purposes, at times, they create a fictitious word and just put Stan on the end of Which it. Which is yeah. what he did with his movie, The Dictator. Yeah, okay. this is exactly what, yeah. what but he now, Here's the thing. Even if you go down that path, I still have an issue with that. Because you've got a fictitious world that is clearly referencing a reality. Yeah. And as a result, you still have... In, you know, in my opinion, something that is racially motivated. I think, yeah. I think that I think not. Maybe I'm not going to guess his intention, but some of the intention of that of doing a stan or doing something. It's like this is how we, the hegemonics mm. or the dominant class or the place I'm about to go and try and subvert. This is how we see that. So I'm going to present what we see, not mm. the truth, because it's not a documentary. And I'm presenting the jester's view of that yep. so I can subvert you. And I think that's the argument that someone like Baron Cohen would make. And I think it's a very valid argument. I think he would say, what I'm trying to show you is the perception of the other mm. and how um, how flawed it is, right? And how, um, how it doesn't engage with the actuality. It just engages with all these stereotypes. Now, you could say that. I... You know, you guys know that I'm a person who's very liberal when it comes to don't censor stuff. Like sure. that. So my position on that would be I would never censor a film like Borat. It's more that I have a gut reaction to this basic truth. All those people that were filmed, like the, the locals, mm. they shot in Romania. To me, they're the worst of the victims because that was actually – that's their lives, right? Now – you could say, but Borat, did they know? Were no, they no, 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 they, no, no, They're also, they don't, they don't. How they're completely. Well, because they, but but they're not depicted in the same way the Americans are. The Americans are, you know, that's clearly uh, a deer in headlights. You're under the. Well, no, but actually, well, what about the the Romani people, right? Well, the the, the fictional Kazakhstani people, where um, but I thought that was stage. You said that wasn't stage. That's not stage. No, no, because that's even worse because he's, he's referencing people that have raped their families. They're just peripheral. Like so when he goes, oh, he's over there, he, you know, he had sex with my sister. So mm-hmm. He's obviously just putting that in the script after the fact. No way, man. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Herschel's not happy. I want to announce on this podcast, Herschel is not Now, here's happy. the thing. I'm not talking about censorship. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying I'm Nikolai. 
Yeah. What is up with Borat? You, you, we can't just... What we're actually doing is we, we're whitewashing it. <laughs> we're saying that it's a work of art and because it made $200 million or whatever mm. it was, all the legal actions failed. All went to settlement. Okay, but, yeah. but really insignificant settlement. But... Is that true? Were the settlements small, were they? Uh, they were behind a confidentiality I mean, those college agreement. kids must have got a, a bit of money out of that. Mate, but cause... here's the issue that I've got. Those college kids, mm. they come across as... What? Three of the worst people oh. that I've... I mean, they're jerks, right? I thought you were about to stand up for them. No, no, they, they, they're, all, they, they're jerks. But Borat's also a jerk. Or, or Sasha Baron Cohen for... That's their actual lives. Their families were in court. Okay. The, their families claimed yeah. oh that they lost um, their lives. They were, they were promising young men, Herschel. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying they ex- their families by extension. <laughs> they had promising careers. Yeah. And, uh, no, no. They, but, no, no, they could have been just as the uh, no, One of the kids had... Uh, uh, one, of the, one, of, one of them had, uh, I believe... Um, some sort of law clerkship lined up, which subsequently lost. Well, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. But personally, is that a if, problem that he lost if, that? If I'm I was the one who was going to employ that dude as the clerk, yeah. he's out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point. But all I'm not trying to provide. I don't have an answer to these things. I will say that I think, as a work of documentary, it's just brilliant. As a work <laughs> of kind of documentary mockumentary anthropology and there's a long history of that where a person goes to a country Nanook and or Nanook. Nanook, so starting with Nanook right um, now Nanook itself is politically very problematic so yeah. I'm not trying to say there are no issues here I don't have an answer all I know is that it provokes really interesting questions and you've got the Nikolai and Herschel position which is this is racism mm. and I I think the fact that we whitewashed it and enabled it to happen is part of the problem itself and it enabled a hegemonic society to go, you know what? I don't give a stuff about you because I'm just going to make a lot of money off of I, it. I think, if you, I think there's another level of complexity to this as well. Now, And I personally, it's complex for me because I, I hate the idea of censoring movies, right? Yeah. But, but if you do this in real life, <laughs> if, if I was to do Look this out. in real yeah. life... yeah. You'd be cut. You'd be shot down straight away. Yeah. You can't do this. You can't behave this way. What are you way talking about? In real, I'm saying if this you can't. This, you can't dupe a person. You watch TikTok? No, no. Well, okay, so no. That's not again. Pranks. I don't watch TikTok. Yeah, right? but that's what kid. That's no, what, okay, but okay. What about that, funniest home videos or like what are they used to be called? Hidden okay, camera shows. Okay, yeah. I send you. What I if someone gets a basketball in the groin on funniest home yeah. videos? <laughs> okay, okay, well, okay. I send you an email. I go. I'm a king from Rwanda. Sure. Yeah. And um, how much do you want? Will you invest? Yeah. I'm looking for investments of fifty thousand dollars. You invest. You lose your fifty grand. Mm. You're a person in Borat. You thought you were doing something. That's interesting because you are investing your time, yourself, well, your persona. Okay, they so the, so the Jewish couple, the, the Jewish couple own a business. They own a BNB. Mm. They rent it out. You lose your business. All right. How is that different? Mm. Borat lost them their business. Is that true? No, I don't think that's true. I think, they, I mean, what off the back of that, you would support them. Uh, how many Jewish? People would go. Oh, well, we now go, you we said, well, public sentiment, no, gonna, public sentiment is going to rectify yeah, Sasha Baron, or Sasha Baron Cohen's going to resurrect. But, but if your goal, if your goal is to expose something, what did you expose about the Jewish family? Nothing other than this guy is racist towards the Jewish people. But the college boys, what do you expose there? You expose they have a horrible attitude towards women, and they might one day be representing women in a, in a law case. I'm well, happy that they're can not. I actually no no it was my, I was going to say <laughs> the satire in. Uh, of the America, mm. like of like the the, the heartland well, they, and so on, is is like that's happened many many times, right? So we've seen so much of that. So 
you know, we have a long history of people going to the rodeo and seeing the ultra-nationalists, you know, the, the Deep South, all, all those tropes. But they're, they're, I, I'm yeah. more concerned about the depiction. A, a friend of mine who's in Melbourne is a one of the leading theorists of um, Eastern Europe through the post-war era mm. and the way that certain tropes and representations of, like, the gypsy as uneducated mm. and the, 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 the kind of the people of the land, of the village... I can't speak for her. I think she'd be horrified, right? Because what this does is it puts in your mind. Like, to the, the, I think this is a point you're making, Oshul. To what degree does this further affirm stereotypes of the uneducated Absolutely. backwater other? Sure, right? sure. I also want to say that comedy work. This relies on two points of comic points of view. The one which is the othering, which is yeah. the ones we're all against. And then there's the one that is the satirical. I'm using the othering to stick it to the to these American, yeah. which values. is like a second layer. Yes, of, it is of yeah. satire second layer in the but film, which is a very common satire and, in America. And you got to remember this was an effective thing, but I don't know how effective on either side. I, I do know that for the intellectuals and for us wankers, mm. we go, oh, yeah, we get it. America sucks, dude. And, yeah, yeah that, you probably shouldn't have done that, dude, but we, we're glad that you did because you helped expose some yep. American stuff. But there's this is how jokes have to work sometimes. You need to bring people – you need to pull someone in. You need to open with – Three people walk you circumstances yeah. that are familiar, that are endearing. A joke teller usually has to make you like them before you hear the joke. That's how they work. But can I? I, but I just want to ask something yeah. really quickly. Could you make? Could you even consider making Borat today? Okay, yeah, so for sure. Here's the thing. I, here's the example you want to ask. Can you use an alien instead of Borat? So not someone who relies on othering of what yeah. we all Could you can bring laugh a at. Foreign, if like I a go, alien. I am from another country. Yeah. Beep, 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 bop, bop. Yeah. And then I try and do that comedy. Does it work? No. No. No, it That's just strange fails. in a strange land. You that, need to that, rely yeah. on okay. something that I you can add connect th to. There's one, because we, we probably got to wrap this up, because it's been a really like, well, we, I powerful, think first powerful. we're going to have a punch-up. <laughs> 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 okay, wait. Here's the thing I want to say. The issue I've got with... Calling it a satire, though. Mm. This is the other thing. I can't see a, a coherent political position in the film. Mm. And this is the other thing that makes That's it complicated. True. Because if you think about it, um, <laughs> he attacks the what he calls the rednecks, mm. right? So he attacks conservative, Republican America. But at the same time, he gets invited to uh, a kind of open <laughs> table discussion <laughs> with progressive feminists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he... he, he Really makes them look. <laughs> Sorry, I've, just, I've got memories of, of the scene. I know <laughs> that's why I can't help laughing. You know, and, and when when he says things like uh, a woman wrote a book, and he and Azamat just start laughing. Is that in the movie or is that in the TV show? No, no it's, it's in the movie. movie. Oh, is it in the yeah, TV? So, oh, right, so, yeah, so yeah. I guess what I'm saying is okay. there isn't really a coherent policy no, there isn't. to it. And the so things that I, I couldn't call it satire in that way. Well, that's the other thing. And the things that I find the funniest are the things that are so erroneous that sometimes they're political, but sometimes it's just that is a bizarre <laughs> way to act in any situation. And I find that the funniest. Yeah. I love that or stuff. Or when they're running naked through the hotel lobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's or, just or, or, or when they're in the elevator and everyone's just looking at each other. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. But I think that's an important point. One thing that. I think will always stand the test of time in in some comedies. Mm. It's a remarkable example of excess. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. That is, it's, so it's goes, chaotic. It's, it's, it's the chaotic clown yeah. going crazy, ripping yes. everything down, like whether it's good go, or bad. But yeah. what about this? What are we comparing here? Borat, right, and Croc Dundee. Yeah. Look at how chaotic Borat is, and politically, and also in just the othering. Mm. But you look at Paul Hogan. And how much in control, how he yeah. tames New York instead of 
takes a sledgehammer and just doesn't know what yeah. he's doing. There's such a difference in that comic approach. Yeah, and I think it's, characters. it's also, this goes back to you, Sanishal, I think both of these films are of a time, mm. right? Now, I don't know if you could still make Borat. Maybe but, you that, couldn't, but, that's, but that, that's exactly that kind of point. chaotic thing is also a part of like what we were talking about the last episode, which is around this concept of the postmodern world. See, I, I think I probably disagree with both crazy, you know, I don't right? think you get anywhere near a production studio with Borat today. I don't think you get mm. even, I don't think you get eons of, of, a, of, yeah. of this All thing right. going to... Yeah. To, well, to that I say, very nice. <laughs> we must move on to our mise en scene. Mise en scène. Up first is Herschel. What have you chosen from Crocodile Dundee? All right, an interesting bit of dramatic tension in Crocodile Dundee is we don't know if Paul Hogan's reputation that precedes him, Mick Dundee's reputation, is genuine or if the whole thing's been made up mm-hmm. and exaggerated. And in fact, when Linda Kozlowski gets introduced to him, it appears that the whole thing is made up and she's wasted her time. The first time this is broken down is where they're driving to the place where they're eventually going to go on the three-day walk in the outback, go walkabout, and they pull up in the four-wheel drive to a water buffalo that is standing across the, the road, the dirt road that they're on. And this is actually, and, and that actually, I didn't do a lot of research into this, which I probably should have, but it's a testament to the fact, Craig, that you said that the cinematographer mm. went on to do, uh, what was it? He did a couple oh, of big things. Master and Command. Exactly. So the cinematographer uses this moment to transition the film from Mick Dundee being a possible fake uh, and, and forgery of, of a character into immediately establishing him as something very special and it happens in about 30 seconds. Mick Dundee walks up to the water buffalo and he makes almost the rock-on sign with his hands. And it's a beautiful scene, his weather-beaten brown face and his outback persona. As he tames this beast, and with his fingers, he puts his hands across its, its forehead, I suppose. And the beast sits down and almost goes to sleep. And then we cut to Linda Kozlowski and she says, oh my God. And in that moment, the legend that is Mick Dundee is born and is verified by the simple act. And it's a very clever and powerful moment in the film. It's such an iconic moment. It's one that kids would make fun of in the playground. It's something that we would all... like. There, I, I was surprised at how many massive moments there are in this film. There are tons of resonated them. But with it also everyone. calls up a kind of... And this is a thing in, in the Western as well in some mm. ways, but... Um, a kind of mysticism of the outback. Yeah. And I think the music of that scene people, is really powerful yeah. as well. And I like um, that you talk about the close up because it's an angled close up as yeah. well from memory. And it's like, it's as if uh, Mick Dundee is communing with the water buffalo. It, it's really, really yeah. well done. And that again goes back to this idea of there's something nativist going on here. And it was such a successful Well, sequence. to this day, I'm still not sure if he is magical or mythical yeah. or yeah. in plug, but because it's constantly subverting it. He's looking at his watch to tell the time. He's, he's <laughs> shaving with a real razor and then replacing it with a knife. But then he can also do things like that where I'm like, yeah. well, maybe is that part of Australia? Well, but is that also part of his comedy shtick? But, well, there's that. But yeah. then also the fact that he was raised by Aboriginal people. Yeah, right. So there's a kind of mysticism there that uh, the movie certainly wants to attach to yeah, right. the, the land I think the mystic- and the people. The mysticism is important. I don't want to go into this, but the self-awareness of Paul Hogan as the writer and the actor in this movie, when he's using the razor mm. and Linda Kozlowski comes past and he pulls out the knife and he starts shaving, yeah. but she knows that he was using a razor previously, that's the self-effacing nature of the character, which was so endearing, I think, to audiences. Yeah. No, definitely. Lovely bit of work. Mise en scène. All right, Bruce, what have you chosen for us from Borat? 
the satire on evangelical Christianity in American and even Australian art is, is like legion, right? My favorite sequence in uh, Borat is he wakes up on the pavement because he's so angry at what Pamela Anderson has apparently done to him <laughs> because of her, uh, her escapades on the boat. And so he's little, little fire. He's burned his plane ticket home. He's bereft. And he needs saving, mm. right? He wakes up the next morning. These people are walking past him. He hasn't shaved. He looks like a, a, a homeless man. He comes into uh, the um, the hall, and it's quite amazing because again, you know, this is actual footage. Yeah, you've got a Supreme Court justice is there. You've got a senator, a Republican senator, and they're talking about Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, he he somehow gets obviously they shoot him the documentary, so he's been invited in with his filming person, and he you know through a whole bunch of shenanigans, he is taken under the wing of one of the ministers there, and they're going to save him. So I've written, I've got the script here. He says, so the, the person who's taking over, would you greet him with a great big Jesus' name for a couple of minutes? And everyone just says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Borat says, I am alone in this country. Nobody like me. My only friend, Azamadi, take my money and my bear, and he leave me alone. <laughs> Not only this, the woman I love, the reason I travel across the country, she have to do something terrible on a boat. And now I can never forgive her. And the guy goes, you have to, Borat. Is there anybody who can help me? Yes. The one that can help you is one who preached about tonight, Jesus. Do what Jesus like me. Absolutely, Jesus loves you. Do what Jesus like my sons. Jesus loves your sons. Do Jesus love my retard brother, Bilo. He loves your brother, Bilo. Do what Jesus love my neighbor, Nu Sultan Tuliakbai. Yes, he loves everybody. Nobody loves my neighbor, Nu Sultan Tuliakbai. <laughs> From there, mm. Borat gets put into a prostate position mm. and they're going to save him. We keep cutting to a man who just runs across the stage up and down because yeah. the spirit of Jesus is in him. The man that has introduced him to be saved starts mm. speaking in tongues. And the, the minister who grabs Borat's head and chest says, son, just speak. Just speak. It'll come out of you. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember, Borat doesn't speak, but he flicks his tongue constantly. And the camera keeps cutting very strategically to the audience. And everyone's just going, Jesus, Jesus is with us. And it's so bizarre. And then this man in the back, he keeps running up and down the stage because mm. Jesus is in him. That's the best example I've seen of that, like the, the, the aesthetic you describe, Herschel, the excessive representation of the conversion. Because this is a classic conversion, right? Mm. Borat's been saved by finding Jesus. But it's completely under the guise of, um, I am the other mm. wanting to be civilized. No, you know, we could go back 300, 400 years and the missionaries are coming in to civilize mm. the uncivilized or the... The, you know, the uneducated or the ones that have not found God. Borat finds God, and that is, in fact, the catalyst to get him back on the road. Well, that's and that's, there's something so beautiful about that, but it, again, politically very worrying. <laughs> the, the, the best thing, I love that you've chosen this moment, because for me, that was always the least funny moment in the film. Right. That was the moment where I was like, well, you failed here. Because I didn't feel like he was, 
subverting them in any way or making them look dumb, right? Yeah. I love that you're, you've got a good reading there because just by the nature of what it is, it is already a subversive it, it's act. It's so strange. But the one right? thing that I do admire the most about it in, <laughs> is that in the plotting of the script, in, and which is also something that's being developed on the fly as they're shooting, they know they want to achieve something, they hope they achieve it, they rely on members of the public to accidentally give stuff, then they craft mm. around it. This is the moment where it's like, we need our character to go through the dark night of the soul, which is him sleeping out the front, then to be resurrected and to find new hope and then go and fight the final battle. They use this amazing church sequence to do that. So I'm in awe of it because it's like a a prankster using a real sequence like that in real life and what they think they're doing in in there, but to to co-opt it into the narrative, which I think is excellent. And Sasha Baron Cohen's performance is astonishing in that moment because what he has to play is, (laughs) he has to play it in this way. It's real. I'm a person who needs saving. Mm. But he needs. To, he knows that the people who are going to watch this on the cinema when it makes the $280 million, which you couldn't know about, they're in on a gag. Yeah. So I have to make it excessive and comical enough <laughs> for the payoff for the people watching, yeah. but I can't tip my hat to the people who are trying to well, save Well, he walks me. a fine line. In fact, and this is what I find real on a set, if you laugh too much, if people are laughing, that means when you get into the end, it's not going to be good. Yeah, Because right. now you're entertaining the people standing around who are crew who don't really aren't the audience. Yeah. He makes the audience of the church laugh, which I think makes it yeah. more real. Because well, there's going to be heartwarming in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, one at, no one at the, the, the are you retired joke mm. uh, laughs at that because they're just sitting around and they're going, they're offended by it and they're trying to help him understand. But in the church, when he says, no one likes my neighbor, everybody laughs yep. because it's a genuine thing. Like he's actually connecting with them and he needs to connect but with them But he's making fun. He's ma- at the end of the yes, day, of course, he's, he's making, making fun, fun of them. But this is where that's the nearest... Uh, that and the rodeo scene is the nearest to traditional <laughs> satire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just want to say this. So um, one of the best things I've ever attended in my life is when I was in Harlem, I went to a gospel service, mm. and it was absolutely beautiful, mm. really moving. It, it was a, a true connection with spirit, and people were going, hallelujah, and everything mm. like that. If Borat had used that yes. church, all right, this wouldn't have played out this way. No, no, you're right. It's got to be a has, white church, It has to man. be a white <laughs> yeah. uh, Pentecostal. And I've got to say, they, obviously, they were horrified when they discovered what was going on. Yeah. Um, particularly Especially because the, the Supreme Court Justice and the Senator. And the so they were leading, so. I was reading that they were leading some of the, the le- obviously, the legal yeah. Because they they end uh, up looking... Actions. Well, it depends. They end up looking foolish to the outsider like us. Mm. But to the people inside the church, there's a deep sense of connection. But, I mean, obviously, a farcical connection to Borat. Because Borat's not actually going through the night of the soul yeah. and, the <laughs> and, to, and finding Jesus. Yeah, yeah, to then go and assault Pamela Anderson. Yeah. It's dreadful. All right. I want to sh- shout out to Pamela Anderson, oh. though, because she being involved in this project yeah. and the way that... And she's very good in it. She's right. very good. <laughs> yeah. I feel sorry for her. That's the hardest part for me to watch only because I'm like... No, but that was, she was part of it. I know, though. I know. But it's still hard to watch. I don't know. All right. Listen, <laughs> which film do you think is funnier? Borat. Yep. Herschel? Borat. Yeah, Borat's Borat one of the funniest movies I've yeah, ever yeah. made. Okay. <laughs> Borat's um, funny, yes. Well, obviously we've talked about one of my final questions was, is it still funny now? I, I, it is. I just watched it. Like, I watched it twice over the last two weeks. Wow. So. I think it's still funny. I think it, like there are moments where I'm like, oh, that's harder to watch, oh. and now I know too much about the way the world well, works. Well, this is the other thing. No, I but do you mean is, say. Is, is Borat still funny if I watch it now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I we watched it recently, and I yeah. found one of the. Having said that, it wouldn't be funny if I was Jewish or Kazakhstan. I'm I'm fortunate in that I don't 
I, I don't I don't live in a in a community or it's it's not my narrative that can be offended. Mm. I'm fortunate to be mm. have avoided this this gunshot, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. But others are not so fortunate and they're gonna have problems yeah. with it. It's a clown with a shotgun. So I have an issue with that. I would love I have people an issue that to write in. Yeah. Like, you know, I know on Instagram some I would love to know what people think of Borat. Right? Like where do oh. people sit on this? Like send us emails or something. Yeah. And also yeah, like can, drill yeah, down you, to the question. Can you make it today? All right. I'd love right. an answer to that question. That's a question for Instagram. What film do you like better? Which is the better film in your mind? I can't compare these two movies at all. I mm. came back to Crocodile Dundee after a long time. I kind of enjoyed it. It's not the kind of movie I'm going to watch again and again, but they're lovely sequences. I think, it's, it. I think Borat's probably better for me. I mean, I, they're both interesting. I think from the form of the mockumentary, Borat mm. is really sophisticated. But see, I can also throw Borat into a particular type of film that we discuss a lot. Mm. I call it the, the stepbrothers vehicle. That's yeah. what Borat is. Yeah, like having a few dreams. Crocodile Dundee is, is, is different, right? That's yeah, I think that plugs into a lot more. It's it's obviously Australia's biggest film mm. ever. Like, it's huge. Like, I just think that... Um, and also, it's gone out of favour a bit, but I would say for people who haven't seen it, watch it. Mm. But watch it as a historical object it's a really important moment in australian history and i think it's usually revealing now if you watch it mm. now not you know but i think that was borat as well yeah. I, I know it's what 2006 or something right mm-hmm. 2008 Eight. so it's also an historical object because of the evolution in social media i yep. think all right before we say our closing remarks i just want to say thank you to everyone who turned up uh, to watch halloween on halloween yes, night that was Sydney Uni. great that event was a lot of fun and also those who came to see midsummer director's cut uh, the night before yeah yeah yeah, yeah so, so keep checking brilliant. out instagram that's where we list things like so, that uh, there's always events going on so to follow us we've got a lot of exciting things coming up that is it for our festival of comedy next week We're joining New York City's finest as we look at two very different films that explore life on the razor's edge. One film stars Jamie Lee Curtis as a rookie cop who is being gaslit by a psychopath and also the police department. The other stars Leonardo DiCaprio as an undercover cop caught far too deep undercover. Yes, we're looking at Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel and Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Both films are available to watch in Australia on stand. Guys, it's going to be very exciting mm. police work timely next that week. We, I think timely that we're doing Scorsese, given Killers of the Flower Moon. But you know what I'm really looking forward to getting back into? I saw Blue Steel. Bruce, we got Blue Steel we from Grog and Flicks when we were about 12, mm. so 13 years old. I remember hiring it from Grog and Flicks. Yeah. And I always loved the cover with Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. in the blue. The cover's the one reason I'd never watched it. I was like, this looks like a boring TV movie. Yeah. I didn't realise it's an amazing movie. He is interesting. So Ron Silver is the the, 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 the villain, the yeah. antagonist in it. I'm not a fan of Ron Silver because I think he's, yeah, you know, he wins the Oscar for overacting all in right, most right, scenes. Well, we'll, okay, get, we'll get to that. That's time next cop. week. <laughs> Check that out. They're both on stand. You can find them anywhere. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen as it will help other people to find us. We're also on Instagram at film versus film podcast. Podcast. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film. Bruce. Film. Film.